This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. We've been journeying through the book of Exodus, and we're going to take a little hiatus from Exodus itself today, just a little hiatus, to talk about the Egyptian empire and what this was about. And I'm going to throw something out that I'm not the first to do this. There have been others, but it's an interesting question because I think that when God calls us into something, Satan doesn't always let up his attacks against us. In fact, there's good evidence that he can even intensify those attacks as we have uh, committed ourselves to the work of God. And as Moses is being retrained in the wilderness during these 40 years, and as he's writing the book of Genesis, and he, of course he's married now, and he has children, God provides incredibly for the life of Moses during that time period, and he's out with his sheep and flocks. What is going on back in Egypt? What is taking place there? So that's our question that we're, gonna, we're kind of moving back to Egypt, and then we'll move forward to Moses tomorrow morning at 8.45 and continue on with that journey. Tomorrow morning will be the Exodus, and then on Sabbath, we're going to be talking about the sanctuary. We're going to be talking about the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments and some of the important implications of that for today. So I'm going to share with you in this presentation some work that I have been involved with for many years now. And I, I mentioned in my first seminar, I kind of find myself sometimes in three different spheres of, of scholarship. One is in biblical studies, which I'm very passionate about, and I teach Hebrew at Southern Adventist University and, uh, and, and also teach biblical studies classes there, uh, Old Testament classes. Um, and then I also am involved in archaeology in Israel and have been for many years. I direct an excavation in Israel currently. And by the way, if any of you are ever interested in going on an archaeological excavation project, we uh, sponsor a project every summer, generally speaking, unless uh, something causes that not to happen, but we haven't been in that situation for a while. And so if you're interested this coming summer on going on a dig or on being involved in a project like that, see me afterwards or uh, contact me uh, at Southern Adventist University by email. I'm happy to talk with you further about that. Um, we are currently directing the largest excavation in the Middle East at the site of Lachish, the second most important city in Judah after Jerusalem. I spoke about Lachish, I think, maybe last year a little bit. I've spoken at a number of different venues on it. I don't remember always where. So anyway, um, if you're interested in that. And then my final area that I have spent many years on is in the area of Egyptology because in my dissertation, I was very interested in the interaction between Egypt and Canaan during the time of the Exodus. And maybe I'll just share a story with you here. I went to a very... Um, prestigious archaeology program at the University of Arizona. It was the largest program in your Eastern archaeology in North America at that time. There were two major institutions in archaeology in that field, and it's a narrow field, so, you know, it's not like medicine where you have uh, medical schools all over the country. It's a small discipline. Everybody knows everybody. Um, when we get together for professional meetings, there are maybe 600 or 700 people there, and it's pretty much everybody in the field that comes together. So it's not like when you go to a cardiology conference or you go to you know, a big conference and there's thousands and thousands of people. So I want to put that in perspective. But I went to a program which was at a state university at the University of Arizona, and um, it was a tough, tough program. I talked a little bit about that last year in my seminar, some of the challenges that I faced there. Um, as a Christian going through a very secular uh, PhD program. But I want to share with you something. The Lord is faithful to us. When we are faithful to Him, He is faithful to us. And I tell you, it was a growing experience for me spiritually, academically. It was a wonderful thing. You know, my students would come to me. We just got done talking a little about the Sabbath, didn't we? My students, my fellow colleagues would come to me and say, Michael, how do you do it not studying? I mean, Saturday is when we do all the studying to get ready for the rest of the week. How do you do it? You don't have that day. You're, you're resting, aren't you? What, what do you do anyway? What, what's resting anyway? 
I mean, are you just sleeping all day? What are you doing? Oh, I would tell them I would go hiking up in the canyons and the mountains there surrounding Tucson, Arizona. It was wonderful. We had a youth group. We were always active. I was involved with Pathfinders, and we were doing stuff all the time. But, you know, <clears throat> so they'd, they'd ask me about that, and I'd, I'd respond to them. I'd say, how do you do it without a day of rest? Amen. The Sabbath was such a blessing to me and has been throughout my life during the the course of my life, the, the time of rest, the time away with God, the time to be out in nature with God was just such a wonderful respite from all the academic grind that you find during the week. One day, it came time for my comprehensive exams, and my professors uh, met with me and asked me questions for about two hours. That's what happens orally after you write on, on uh, specific questions that they give you. And when I passed those exams, it came time to talk about a dissertation topic. And my major professor, William Deaver, who is still today the foremost Near Eastern archaeologist in North America, he turned 82 just last month. He said, Michael, he says, the biggest, biggest issue, this was now 1994, he said, the biggest issue in our field today is the issue of the Exodus and the issue of where did Israel come from. Now, you have to understand, my professors didn't believe in an Exodus. They didn't believe that that event took place. So, if you reject the biblical story of this people coming into existence, how? Miraculously, where did they come from? So scholars have been trying to reconstruct their origin based on sociological and anthropological models of other peoples and their origins. So there's all kinds of ideas out there. And it has been, uh, you know, sometimes I think that scholars have a great time because if they, if they come out with new ideas, they can publish a book or an article and become very famous sometimes. And, and so you have a lot of a lot of discussion about, a lot of ink that has been, and years that have been spent by scholars trying to solve this question when all they need to do is go to the Word of God and see what, what is there. And I, I, I thought to myself, how am I going to write on the topic of the Exodus in this program? And it was a, it was a crisis for me, a crisis of how I felt a little bit like Moses, you know, not quite the same level, don't get me wrong. I wasn't destined to be king of anything, okay? But, but what, what was I going to do in this, in this program now? This is my PhD dissertation. This is the final step of the process. What was I going to do? So I remember going home, and I remember praying about it. I remember walking out in the desert. That's something similar to Moses, isn't it? Walking out in the Sonora Desert and, and praying and asking the Lord to give me guidance. I remember calling my father back at home and asking him what he thought, and, you know, my professor was about to retire. He was kind of old-fashioned, and he kind of was in the old school where you wrote on what your professor decided you would write on. You didn't choose your own topic. So that was also, I wanted to respect him. I wanted to, you know, so it was a very, but we had a good relationship, and, and in many, many instances during that experience, I had opportunities to share with him about where I came from, and he knew where I came from. He had been to uh, many of our Adventist campuses before. He knew other Adventist scholars. So finally, I came into his office. I remember after a long time of prayer, it was only a few days later, but I remember coming to him, and I said, you know, Professor Deaver, I said, if I write on the book of the Exodus, there are only two outcomes. I said, either I will write according to what you and my professors here and the scholarly community in general believe to have happened, or at least I'll write about the origin of Israel on a sociological, anthropological terms. And I said, if I do that conscientiously, I will not be able to teach in one of my denominations, institutions in the future. Because if I do that and conclude what 
the scholarly consensus is today in secular scholarship, I didn't use the word secular scholarship, what the scholarly consensus is today, I don't feel conscientiously, I don't think it's possible for me to continue teaching, or I hadn't started teaching at that point yet, but to teach in the church. And by that point, you know, I had been a pastor and I was very convicted about what God's purpose was and, and the authority of God's word. I shared last year, every single day that I went to school, I had to study as diligently the Bible and the spirit of prophecy as I was studying the journal articles and the textbooks that I needed to face and, and study. And if you are in a secular university and you're not doing that, you are setting yourself on dangerous ground because the ideas are pervasive. And if you're not balancing those ideas and sifting them through the word of God and the spirit of prophecy, it was a daily commitment that I had to make to be faithful to God through his word and his spirit of prophecy. So I said to Professor Deaver, I said, you know, either I will do that or I will conclude and write on what the Bible says and I am not sure that will fly here. So I put it in a very, try to put it in a very diplomatic way. Well, I didn't think about that, he said. We cannot put you in that situation. You need to have a job in your denomination. They took, get, take good care of their own. I know they do. And he says, we need to find a different topic for you. And I said, I've got an idea. Why don't I write on the same time period, but I focus on ancient Egyptian warfare and the, and the, and the, and the Egyptian texts and what they are saying about this period of history as a backdrop to the bigger question of what's happening in the late Bronze Age in Canaan and in this. I'll just give kind of the historical background to all of this without getting into the biblical stuff. That's a wonderful idea, he says, but I don't know anything about Egyptian warfare. I said, well, I've been taking Egyptian with Professor Wilkinson, Richard Wilkinson, who, by the way, has become since then one of the most famous Egyptologists in the world as well just retired recently as Regents Professor from Arizona, I said, I can, maybe we can put him on the committee. Now, that's a great idea. He could be another examiner. That would be good. So in a, a, just a brief period of time in that meeting in his office, we devised a dissertation topic, which I had given some thought to already anyway. God was good. Instead of having uh, three members on my committee, I ended up having five members on my committee, which meant more scrutiny, but it also meant a lot more guidance, and God guided me in that. And I'm going to share with you some of the things that have come out of that um, in subsequent work and research that I've done. I published that dissertation as a book, and I am working now on a second book, and I have for many years, and I keep, I've talked about this book being written for many years now, and I need to come back to it. These three worlds conflict, you know what I'm saying? When you're doing, writing a commentary on Exodus, uh, that takes about six months, seven months of time. That's time away from writing what you were planning to write. And then when, you, when you're working on excavations in Israel and publishing that stuff, um, that takes time. So eventually I've got to finish this thing. So we're going to talk about the pursuit. We're going to talk about the military, the empire, and the expansion of Egypt today, the making of an empire. Because the period of time in which Moses was in the wilderness, the period of time in which Moses was steeped in Egyptian culture and growing up in the palace, this was the period of time in which Egyptian uh, dominance began to expand throughout the ancient Near East. And that's an interesting thing. We're not going to talk about these things again. So, here is the III. What do you think? Well, now you can't see him. Here he is, and he's holding the ropes that are tied to the necks of his enemies. Bunch of enemies lined up here, a bunch of enemies lined up here, and you can't see his, oh, you can, you can. You see this right here? You can't see his arm, but his arm is back here, and he's holding a mace, a club. He's about to clobber his enemies. This is a very typical New Kingdom smiting scene that was put on the walls of ancient temples to show the dominance, the prowess, the, the might of the Egyptian pharaoh to defeat his enemies, to quell the chaos that was found in the surrounding nations around Egypt. 
And it is interesting, we don't have a lot of monuments of Tutmosis III showing his campaigns. We have many of other kings, not as many of Tutmosis III, but we have this one. And you can see this guy staring out at you. He doesn't have a smile on his face, does he? Um, what was he doing? Well, Hatshepsut did not allow him to take over the throne, so she did something to appease him. She made him the commander of the armies of Egypt. And as commander of the armies of Egypt, he would be the guy that would go off to war. She, she stayed back home, controlled the empire from home, and he was involved in empire expansion. In his lifetime, he conducted 17 campaigns into Canaan. This is a record of campaigns of any new kingdom king that came after him ever before. Now, some would argue perhaps that he did this to establish the Egyptian empire, and afterwards the kings just had to go out and make sure people were behaving themselves, and, and that's about all they had to do. But, but is it possible, as some scholars have suggested, that he not only went on campaigns to conquer, but he might have even gone on campaigns to search for someone who had been missing who he wanted to be rid of for a very long time. Interesting concept, and I don't have the answer. I'm just throwing it out there as a possibility. Uh, we don't have any support anywhere for that specifically, but it's interesting, and others have brought it up. Now, when the king goes out to battle, and here is the III. Notice the serpents again. By the way, this is that Jed spine thing again as, as, as it's worn around his kilt. Um, here he is standing before Horus. He's offering uh, uh, gifts to Horus. As he went forward into battle, he was given, this is the Egyptian ideology, he was given power. He became a god in battle and he became powerful through, through uh, the Egyptian gods to accomplish those missions and he often came back. Here we have a map around 1400 BC. This is the map uh, of the Egyptian empire in the 14th century BC. Now, now this raises a lot of questions for people. Why is this area look like it belongs to Egypt if the Israelites were here? And why does this area look like it belongs to Egypt if the Egyptians, uh, if the Israelites are going there? How could they have left? E well, let me just share with you very quickly. The Egyptian border was right here where the Suez Canal is today. That was the true Egyptian border. While Egypt did have some dominance over this area, they allowed local kings still to rule in that territory. And so uh, we cannot understand Sinai, as it is part of modern Egypt today, as being Egypt back then or Canaan being Egypt back then. It was still referred to as Canaan, as I will explain a little bit further. Um, the Egyptian scribes were very meticulous in describing these particular uh, individuals, campaigns, and territories that were taking place at that time, and they depicted them artistically, the various peoples that they encountered as they went out on their campaigns. And this gives us a great deal of information about the people and the places of the ancient world, because as the Egyptians campaigned to those places, their scribes recorded the places that they campaigned to, that they conquered, and that they encountered. And this, guess what it allows us? Allows us another picture, as we look at the Bible and the places it talks about, we can look at the Egyptian records and look at the places Egyptians talk about and we can compare the two. Isn't that neat? And that gives us a whole new insight into the biblical place names. Now, I know how it is when you read the Bible. Sometimes you hit a place name and you have no idea where it is. And you hit a person's name and you have no idea how to pronounce it or what it is, right? Do you ever get into that? And what you end up doing in your devotional, you, you kind of skip over it, you know? We, we, when we were naming our daughters, we wanted to give them good biblical names. Um, and since I was an Old Testament scholar, it had to be Old Testament Hebrew names. And because my wife was Brazilian and spoke Portuguese, and I come from a German background, I have a lot of German family members, we needed a name that fit into three languages. Brazilian, uh, Portuguese, German, and English. That's a little challenging. So biblical names work really well because guess what? They're translated into every language, aren't they? So that was another benefit. But then you have to figure out how are they translated into other languages? You know, that becomes a discussion. 
I love, the, I love, I love uh, Daniel as one of my favorite characters of the Bible, and so we named our oldest Daniela. Now, Daniela, anyway, do you spell it with an A at the end like the Germans do and the Brazilians do, or do you spell it with an E at the end like the Americans do? That was a two-hour conversation after she was born in the hospital, and it went back and forth, okay? Um, I just met somebody out here uh, during GYC, and they had a multiple-day conversation about how they should name their son. A multiple-day conversation. It got to the point where the hospital says, we got to write something on the birth certificate, and we're going to write it. If you give it to us or not, we'll make it up. So they had to make a decision. So anyway, um, names are extremely important. Places are important. We read those, and they go right past us. I used to get Louisville and St. Louis mixed up. I know that sounds crazy to some people. But do you, any of you ever do that, Louisville and St. Louis? But now that I've been to Louisville, which is here, by the way, and I've been to St. Louis, which is the gateway to the west and has the big, what, arch, right? And I've done evangelism there some years ago. I know the difference because I've been to those places. The Egyptians knew the differences in these places because they were there. The biblical writers knew these places. Why? because they were there. And sometimes we have a difficult time because we haven't been there, but when you go to a place and you live in a place and you experience the place, guess what? You understand what it is and you have a context for it, right? That's why I'd like to take students to the Middle East because they get a context for these places. So here we have some traditional enemies of Egypt. Notice they all have their hands tied together. Um, they're captives. Okay, this guy does anyway over here. Um, there's a Nubian, uh, North African. Here's an Asiatic, a Canaanite. Here's another uh, African. Notice the way their clothes are different. Here is a Libyan. Notice this hairstyle. He has a side lock with his hair uh, coming down like this, this long. Now, this is not a precursor to the Jewish idea of you know, uh, not cutting the edges of your beard. Um, but, but he has a, a very interesting. And by the way, the Libyans have tattoos. The Libyans have tattoos all over them. Very interesting. Did you know that in the Bible there's a prohibition against tattoos? Maybe you haven't heard that before, but there's a prohibition in the books, in the laws of Moses against tattoos. So here we have something interesting going on in the ancient world that was happening as well. Um, another interesting thing, the Egyptians, when they go forward to conquer, and this is Ramses II's uh, which side are the Egyptians, would you say, and which side is the enemy? based on what we said before. These are the Egyptians, perfectly in order, perfectly in formation, perfectly aligned. Why? Because the job of the king as, as the divine God ruler of Egypt, as the representative between the gods and his people, his job was to maintain order, truth, and justice. And that concept we'll talk about a little bit later is called ma'at. And, and you always see the Egyptian chariots perfectly aligned, perfectly moving in formation. The, the, the ships perfectly. You never see capsizing Egyptian ships. No, because they're, they're in order. They're moving forward. They're going, they're going forward, okay? These are the Hittites, by the way. They're not in order. Their horses are stumbling. Their charioteers are falling out of the chariots. They've been hit by arrows. They are, some of the top ones are still in formation, but the others, there is chaos because they are losing the battle. And as I mentioned earlier, some of you were not here in the earlier seminars, the Egyptians never lose a battle according to their records. That's why the Bible is a trustworthy book. Because the Bible tells us about God's people and their defeats as well as their victories. It tells us about their sins as well as their staying faithful to God. And the Bible shares with us how we can stay faithful to God through those experiences. You see, the, the Egyptian history and the Hittite history is different, very different as we will see. Well, here are some Canaanites by the way, there was a neurosurgeon at the University of Arizona some years ago who did a study on the placement of these arrows in a very prestigious medical journal. And he concluded that from a, 
from a physiological um, medical perspective that this was not simply a random placement of arrows, but that they placed them exactly where they wanted to aim those arrows physiologically. And he, it was an interesting study. Got to meet him once at some professional meetings. Well, here are some others. Notice, these are the Libyans. Remember the Libyans? The side locks? Look at those elaborate feather headdresses. Look at their garments. And they're open in the front, interestingly. Look at the tattoos on their legs and on their arms. Interesting people, the Libyans. They were to the, what is Libya today? That's where the Libyans lived. And they were part, one of the nine enemies of ancient Egypt. These smiting scenes were regular scenes. This is Ramses II smiting a group of the traditional enemies of Egypt. There were nine traditional enemies of Egypt called the nine bows. Now, when we say bows, we're not talking about a bow that you put in your hair, right? We're talking about a bow and arrow. These were the nine bows, the traditional enemies of Egypt. And here you have them. You can count them. There are nine of them down there. And you can see the pharaoh smiting his enemy up above. There they are all put together, um, and these nine bowls were those, in those kingdoms, sorry, those kingdoms that existed around the territory of Egypt. Now, the Egyptians did not like their enemies, and they used all kinds of ways in which to, to show their dominance and their control over their enemies. This is the handle of a cane, a walking stick, that was found in King Tut's tomb. Now, we know on the recent uh, medical forensic analysis on King Tut's mummy that he had a club foot and that he probably walked with a cane most of his life, even though he died at the young age of 16 or 17. He didn't die of a blow to the head, as we used to think. The new, MR, the new CAT scans, the new CT scans, uh, and new studies that have been made believe that he might have died of an infection to a, uh, a wound on his thigh that appears to have uh, occurred uh, prior to his mummification. But imagine you're the king and you're holding this. You're grasping your enemies. This is a leg sticking out down here, by the way. This is his leg sticking out from up there. So here's the Nubian guy. You're, you're, you're grabbing onto them. You're subduing them. And, and you're walking with them. And you're squeezing them. And you're oppressing them. Okay? Interesting, isn't it? Here's another one, another cane from the same tomb. Interesting, that's the handle, that's the top of the cane, right? Here's a chariot that was found in King Tut's tomb. And several chariots were found there. The king needs chariots for the afterlife, right? And um, so what you have here are the harnesses of the chariot. You see this circle going around here? Okay, so that's where the ropes go through, right? The reins go through that so that he can ride his chariot. The horses are in the front, usually. Well, this is the close-up of that. This is gold, and here we have another enemy. The reins would go through and, and rub that enemy in the wrong way. Just rub him in a bad way, okay? These are all kind of, we, we kind of laugh at this, you know. What were the Egyptians thinking? What, what you know, I mean, this is kind of silly. no. This was a visual expression of the reality of how they felt about the people around them. They were barbarians and they needed to oppress them. Here's the throne again of King Tut. We talked about it earlier with its, the winged serpent um, on either side of the seat area. You can see King Tut seated on his throne up here on the back of the chair. His wife, Ankha Senamun, is, is, is affectionately touching her husband. She's a young uh, teenage queen. And, uh, but you have here in the front a footstool. There were several thrones found of Tut, for Tut in his tomb and several footstools. They've all been published now. And here's a close-up of that footstool. How many are there? Count them. Nine. Five on one side and four on the other. The nine traditional enemies of Egypt. And, and, and when you're seated on, seated on your throne, what are you doing? You're placing your feet upon your enemies. Why are you doing that? Because you are subjugating them under your feet. The psalmist makes more sense now when we read Psalm 110, verse 1. Sit at my right hand, says God, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
We may read that and say, what does that mean in the Bible? Well, when we understand Middle Eastern culture, ancient Near Eastern culture, and Egyptian culture, we can understand this very easily. By the way, today, still today, when you're in the Middle East, if you ever plan to travel there, don't cross your legs, gentlemen and ladies. Don't ever show someone the bottom of your shoe, the sole of your foot. That is an insult. That basically communicates, I can't stand you. You are inferior to me. The foot is the, is the dirtiest part of the body. It's the one that contacts with the dirt all around. And you know in the Middle East, there's a lot of sand, a lot of dust. You don't show someone the bottom of your feet. By the way, it makes that much more sense when Jesus picked up the towel and the water and began to go around to wash his disciples' feet, becoming the servant rather than the served. That's what Moses was learning, wasn't he, in the wilderness? Becoming the servant of God rather than the one to be served. Well, here's even more interesting. These are the sandals of King Tut. And in the insoles of his sandals, what do you have? You have a couple of, couple of individuals and how many bows? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Wait a minute. Am I miscounting? There's only eight. But there's two guys in here, so maybe they have, maybe they have ten now that we can look at. At any rate, what was he doing when he was walking around in his palace? He was walking on his enemies, trampling on them. Okay, this was real. By the way, I didn't have a picture of it here, but there's even an Egyptian doorstop. You know what a doorstop is, right? You put it under the door to keep the door from closing. Guess what it was? It was the neck and head of an enemy. So every time the door closed, boom, 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 on the head of the enemy. These are, there was a chariot fitting that fit in the hub of the chariot wheel. Why? So that every time the wheel went around, um, the face of the enemy would be hit, you know, by the revolving uh, spokes of the chariot. All these ideas in a real way. Here is Ramses II fighting. And I always wonder what this guy is doing. What is he doing? Lift up your shield, man. You've got an arrow heading straight for your nose. Lift up your shield. But this isn't, this isn't, this isn't uh, uh, painted by an Asiatic, which that guy is up there. No, it's being painted by an Egyptian from their perspective. Look at the size of Pharaoh in comparison to his enemies. Larger than life. Why? Because he is larger than life. Remember Ramses II's colossal statues that we saw earlier in an earlier lecture? And what is he doing to the chief of the, of the city that he has just conquered below? Stepping on him. And what does it say in Egyptian hieroglyphics here? Pet pet en er retenu. Trampling upon the chief of Retenu, which is another name for the territory of Canaan. Okay? So yes, the Egyptians loved to trample their enemies. I went through in my dissertation and I described all of the terminology from these texts. I went through all the texts of the 19th and 20th dynasties. I didn't go into the 18th dynasty, the time of Moses, but all the later ones to look at the military activity from this and to look at the kind of terminology that was used. Now, if you think that that is still, you know, it's still the case in the Middle East today. This is a picture of an entrance to the El Rashid Hotel in Baghdad, Iraq, after the first Gulf War in the early 1990s. What is down here? This is all, by the way, this is, this is marble, and this is President George Bush, the first President George Bush that we had, the father. And it says in English, Bush is criminal. And it says the same thing in Arabic. And he's polishing the floor. And guess what? People who walk into that hotel, what are they walking on? The face of the President of the United States. You think that is just, you know, because they don't like the guy? I mean, how many floors do we have like this in our country of people we don't like? I haven't seen any before. But in the Middle East, this is not only symbolic, this is real. Because what you're doing is you're, you're desecrating him by stepping on him, by trampling him. This is symbolic. Okay. By the way, you remember when his son, 
I always get George, is it George W. that is his son? Thank you. George W., when he was in Baghdad at a press conference after the second Gulf War, I don't know if you remember the image, but one of the reporters in the room threw something at him in the middle of the press conference. What was it? A shoe, and he dodged it. He dodged it, right? Do you think it was a coincidence that the guy threw a shoe at him? You know, maybe it was the closest projectile that he had uh, available to him. Why didn't he throw his camera at him? Why didn't he throw, I don't know, something else at him? Because it was an insult that was intended for the President of the United States. So these things are very real in the Middle East. And sometimes, I, I mention this because sometimes as we do mission work and as we work in different cultures, we need to be aware of some of the things of those different cultures, right? We don't want to go in there and start giving Bible studies and, and, and sit down and, 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 you know, put our feet up on the table like this and say, so tell me, how are things, you know, this is an insult. You, you don't do that, okay? You don't do that kind of thing. My colleague, Philip Simon, who teaches at Southern Adventist University, He's from Syria originally, and he told me how when he was a young boy, not a young boy, what am I saying? When he was a young student at Walla Walla years ago, coming freshly from Syria, went into his advisor's office, one of his professor's offices, and his professor leaned back in his chair as Dr. Saman or Philip at that time was sitting just opposite of him and did just what I showed you right now. Put it, leaned back in his chair, put his feet up and said, so... How, how's school going for you, Philip? And Philip didn't, he couldn't speak. He thought he had offended him. He thought that he was being kicked out of school. He thought that the worst had happened. I mean, the guy was showing him the bottom of his feet. I mean, there was, this was the worst possible thing that could happen. He was mortified, and it was only over a period of, of, of minutes in time that he realized this didn't have the same meaning in America as it had in his home country. So anyway, let's be careful. All right, so here are some Nubians. Here are some different groups that we can talk about. Libyans, Nubians, Asiatics. We've talked about them. Foreigners in Egypt. Who were the Israelites? They were foreigners in Egypt. Joseph had been a great ruler, the second in command after the Pharaoh. But in time, the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 1, there came a king who did not remember Joseph. Now, what I wanted to do in this subsequent study to my dissertation is I wanted to look at these foreigners, their people, places, and polities, that is, larger uh, empires of the ancient world, and look at how the Egyptians described them. I wanted to look carefully at how they described them. I wanted to look at how the Egyptians consistently, if they were consistent in describing these people, because a number of scholars, Egyptologists over the years, have said, you know what? The Egyptians were, the scribes were careless in how they described the ancient peoples around them. They made mistakes. They didn't describe them very accurately. They, they, they switched things around all the time. You know, they didn't spell well. They didn't do things. Now, of course, we have human error, right? But I wanted to know, you know, nobody ever substantiated any of those things. There were no studies to say this is why they did this or this is showing how they did this. They simply was a remark that, kind of made its way in the literature and continued to be repeated. And, and then biblical scholars picked up on that and said, well, you know, the Egyptians, when they talk about these things, they, don't really, they didn't really keep careful records. Well, wait a minute, I'm a historian, and if you say they didn't keep careful records, I want to know how they didn't keep careful records. Show me the data to support what you're saying, and then I'll, I'll, I'll look at that. But there was no data to support what they were saying. It was just a footnote that had been coming into a reference that was then cited ad hominem for, for years by other scholars. And you know what? There's a lot of that in scholarship. Always trace an idea back to its source. Do your homework. Don't simply accept something because some authority says it is. Don't accept me for what I say it is. Study the Bible. Study the spirit of prophecy. Make sure it is according to that. Look at it carefully. Figure things out. We need to be critical, not of the Bible, but critical of people who are saying things about the Bible, not in a, for critical sake, but we need to look at things through the lens of what we know to be true. So I, I, I took on a big study. It was a, this has been a, big, been a bigger study than my dissertation. This was huge. I wanted to do the whole new kingdom, from Ahmose, the founder of that dynasty, all the way down to the end, the founder of, sorry, of the new kingdom, all the way down to the end of that kingdom. 480 years of history. 
and look at all the Egyptian campaigns and documents dealing with their interactions with these people from different parts of the world. That was an enormous project. By the way, let me go back a slide. These are determinatives. These are Egyptian hieroglyphic signs that are not used to spell something, but are used to designate the category of the word that it belongs to. Let me explain that. You have an Egyptian word. Let's say it's Canaan. Where was Canaan? What was Canaan? The Egyptians had specific signs that helped determine what category that particular word fit into. So if Canaan is a group of people, you would use this sign next to Canaan. The, a seated man and a seated woman over three strokes for the plural. If it was an enemy from Canaan, you would put that sign. If it was a soldier from Canaan, you would put that sign. If it was an entity within Egypt, a town or village in Egypt, it would always have this sign. If it was an entity outside of Egypt, a foreign entity, it would have the hill country sign because you know there aren't a lot of mountains in Egypt. It's a flat country. It's, it's alluvial plains and desert next to the Nile River. So you use that country. That's the mountainous country. And if you really wanted to show that it was outside, you could use a throw stick with it as well. That really indicated somebody far away. By the way, a throw stick is a boomerang, and they used it as a weapon back then. So these are different determinatives that determine the category with which these different foreign entities. And my research, my research paradigm was the whole area that we're looking at here. I wasn't interested in Egypt so much. I wanted to know how the Egyptians described the area of Canaan, the people, the places, the cities, the territories, the Hittites up in the north, and we'll talk a lot about that. And I did my research on this beautiful island of Cyprus right in the center of this territory. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Got a Fulbright, Fulbright a fellowship uh, for almost a year and moved my family 10 years ago to that island, and we lived right there in the capital of Nicosia, and it was a wonderful experience. At that time, the Middle East Union headquarters were located in that, on that island. Now they've moved back to Beirut on the coast, but it was a wonderful place. And from there, I could take an hour flight to Israel or hour flight to Egypt or Turkey and do my work that I needed to do and research that I needed to do. And of course, have a concentrated time to write. Now, unfortunately, I didn't quite finish there, but I've got a lot done. Let's look at some of these wars against Canaan. Here is a war, Seti the first. He's the father of Ramses II, the longest reigning pharaoh of history. Here's a war that he takes you recognize the name Jericho. He takes a, a, a campaign just south of the Sea of Galilee to this area here, to the site of Betcheon, which is mentioned many times in the Old Testament. And he, he, there's an there's a insurrection by several other cities that have ganged up against the Egyptian garrison at Betcheon. This is where the Egyptian chariots were. And, and the Seti I records his campaign in going to Canaan and defeating this uh, particular insurrection against his key city there, Bet Shean. Interestingly enough, in the book of Joshua and the book of Judges, Bet Shean is mentioned as one of the cities that the Israelites did not conquer or take. Why? Because an Egyptian garrison was located there. They had chariots, they were intimidated. They were supposed to take all the land, but that's one that they didn't take. Gezer is another city that they didn't take. Why? Because the Bible tells us there were Canaanites there with chariots. The Egypt, they were afraid of the Egyptian chariot. Even after the experience at the Red Sea, they were still afraid. Here's the Karnak Temple, the most magnificent temple probably ever built in Egypt. It was added onto through the centuries by different pharaohs. And on the northern wall of that, you see another smiting scene by Seti I, and you see his campaign records to that, uh, to that particular area. And here's the site of Betcheon itself the ancient mound, the Old Testament city. You remember the story uh, of Saul, the first king of Israel, when he was defeated by the Philistines very close by at Mount Gilboa. The Bible says that Saul was wounded, and what did he ask his armor bearer to do? To, to kill him. And what did he do? He said, no, I can't do that. I'm your bodyguard. I'm, 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 my job is to protect you, not to kill you. So what did Saul do? He fell on his own sword, and then his armor-bearer did the same. His sons, including Jonathan, were killed in that battle. And the Bible says they hung the bodies of Saul and his sons on the walls of Bet-Sheon. 
Now, when you're there and visiting the site, it's a huge, huge mound of, of 18 cities that have been built, one on top of each other. And you can imagine the walls up here. They would have been seen by the Israelites for miles around. And the, the, the Philistine message would be very clear. Your king is dead. His princes are dead. You have no future. We've defeated you. But many years earlier, the prophet Samuel had gone to the little sleepy town of Bethlehem and there had anointed a young shepherd boy by the name of David who would be king. And God had provided, again, ahead of time for this situation. Here is the uh, uh, excavated remains of the Egyptian governor's residency, one of them on the top of Betshean. We've actually found the Egyptian governor's residency. You know how we know? We found inscriptions there, Egyptian hieroglyphic inscriptions. And the layout of these bricks, these are Egyptian-sized bricks. We talked about the Israelites making Egyptian bricks, right? Well, they made Israelite bricks for the Egyptians, I guess. But whatever they made, the Egyptians had a perfect size for their bricks, which was different from the way the Canaanites built their cities. And we can know that by the measurements here. Um, going back a couple of slides, this is the stela, which shows um, Horus uh, and, and Ra with the sun disk above him standing in front of Seti I. And this is the victory stela that was found at Betshean describing his victory over this city. Um, in, so we not only have Karnak Temple in Egypt describing it, we have a victory stela in Israel confirming it that he left there intact. Here's another one of those cities, Rehov. Anyway, I don't want to go into too much detail here. Ramses II was the longest reigning pharaoh in Egyptian history. He's also shown here in the smiting scene. And uh, he inherits from his father, Seti I, a problem, and that is the Hittites in the north of Egypt. Now, the Hittites are mentioned in the Bible 56 times. But did you know that until 1906, we had no evidence for the Hittites outside of the Bible. I shouldn't say that. We already knew them from the Egyptians earlier, but there were still questions. You see, the, the Greek historians never mentioned the Hittites. And because of that, Bible scholars of the critical sort in the 1700s and 1800s doubted whether the Hittites ever existed because they, they were not found outside the Bible anywhere. This is a problem, by the way, we face many times in archaeology. It's called the absence of evidence argument. If you don't find something, scholars assume it didn't happen or it didn't exist. This is a huge problem, friends. Absence of evidence is never evidence for absence. Not in archaeology, where there are hundreds of archaeologists working in the field every year uncovering new stuff and new evidence. It's a very poor scientific argument to make. It's not evidence. It's non-evidence. Okay? It's, an, it's a historian fallacy. But it's done all the time. And I just want to say something here for a moment in passing, because I know we're running out of time. Do I have to end in 10 minutes? Oh, my. What's after this? Plenary? Free time? 15 minutes before the plenary? Okay, I don't want to run anybody out of the plenary, okay? So let me just finish this real quick. Let me just say, 56 times in the Bible, um, you know, we make a lot about what we haven't found. I think it's time that we make uh, more about what we have found. I'm writing a, another book. I know it's crazy, but I've got to finish some of these. But I'm halfway through, and I hope to finish in April. It's going to be a popular book. It's entitled 101 Men and Women of the Bible, Archaeology's Quest for, the His for History's First Heroes. And guess what? We have found 101 men and women of the Bible through archaeology. They are not only kings like Augustus and Tiberius and Nebuchadnezzar and, and uh, Sennacherib. They are, they are common people. They are... Scribes, we just got done as a world church studying the book of Jeremiah. Wasn't that an incredible Sabbath school quarterly? Wasn't that incredible to study? And Baruch, the son of Neriah, the scribe, who inscribed or wrote for Jeremiah the book of Jeremiah. Guess what? We have his seal impression found in the destruction debris of Jerusalem. We have amazing things that are coming up archaeologically. 
And we need to focus on those things that can be positively stated and not always focus on the negative. By the way, the Hittites, 56 times in the Bible, but in 1906, the capital of Hattusha in the middle of Turkey in the highlands and the plateaus was found, along with thousands of texts of the Hittites. And we now know, this is one of the gates into the city of Hattusha, that the Hittites were the major rival kingdom empire to the Egyptian empire during the New Kingdom. They are mentioned in Egyptian texts more than any other entity, hundreds of times. And Ramses II goes out into battle against the Hittites in the Battle of Kadesh. Now, I'm going to go through this very quickly here. Here's some images of him battling the Hittites. Here he is seated on his throne. Look at how big he is again. All right, there he is. And uh, the, the, the city of Kadesh is right on the border between what is Syria, it's located in Syria today near Byblos, and, uh, and Canaan. And it was a very important strategic city that really determined the stronghold uh, of the Egyptians in that area. So the battleground was there. Now what I did is I decided to go and look at all the campaign records of this campaign all across Egypt because Ramses II comes back in his fifth year after this campaign and he boasts in temples all across Egypt. Look at how many copies of this we have. Two, four, uh, 10, 12, I'm counting, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 24, okay? 24 inscribed and then even more on papyri, okay? 20, 27 times he inscribes this on temple walls, his, his victory over the Hittites in his fifth year. It is the most, it is the first major splash of marketing and propaganda for a campaign that we have in Egypt, I mean in a major colossal way, so that some scholars believe maybe Ramses was overstating the case a little bit. Maybe he didn't win the battle. You know why they say that? The Hittites also have a campaign record about this battle. And guess what? They don't lose wars either. So Ramses won the war. The Hittites won the war. Who won the war? So I was flown over to England to, uh, to interview for a uh, National Geographic documentary on this war. And I got there, I got off, literally off the plane, got shuttled in a taxi to the studio. And, you know, when you're jet lagged, it's not a good time to interview. But so they're interviewing me, and the guy is very good. He's a good journalist. He's just trying to get it at, out of me. Who won the battle? Who won the battle? Who won the battle? And finally I said, look, you may want to get who won the battle. But if the Hittites are claiming victory and the Egyptians are claiming victory, we really don't know who won the battle. I mean, just because I'm an Egyptologist, I'm not going to tell you Ramses won the battle. So Hittitologists say that the Hittites won the battle. Egyptologists say that Ramses won the battle. And then some honest Egyptologists say, or maybe they just want to be politically correct, they say it was a draw. <laughs> Neither won the battle. We don't know. But again, that's why I like the Bible, because we see defeats as well as victories. So I looked at the literary record, which is the poetic uh, version of this and all the different sources, and guess what? The use of these determinatives and names, you can see the list there. Hati is, of course, the most frequently used one. There's the city of Kadesh. Just go through this quickly. 380 occurrences of names, and there are only three inconsistencies, and all three inconsistencies of the use of the determinative occurs in the handwritten papyrus versions. The hand-carved versions that are on temple walls are 100% accurate. The bulletin, which is the more logical description of the campaign. Again, different cities mentioned. There you see them, and many of them don't mean anything. You remember Carchemish? This is where Nebuchadnezzar had a famous battle against Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. Again, 177 occurrences, and here we do have one inconsistency. It's the only inconsistency that we have in any of the monumental reliefs in Egyptian temple walls, only one, and it is uh, not the hill country sign, it's something different. But look at the consistency, 99.37%, not bad. So then I go to the reliefs, which depict the battle and show these kinds of... Uh, uh, see, you know, kind of these, these little hieroglyphic descriptions of what's taking place there. It's kind of like a comic strip, you know. You go through and you got these little word bubbles, right, taking place. Go through that. Wow. You know, here, all this, all this description. 
um, all the reliefs, as you go through all the reliefs in all the different places, look, from central Egypt all the way to the southern part of Egypt, 100% consistency all the way through, 100% consistency in the, in the pictorial reliefs. Here is Luxor, okay? There's the city of Kadesh, and here it is again, the city of Kadesh. Why do we know it's the city of Kadesh? Because it's got its name on the city, okay? Isn't that cool? And here's the fallen one. You see the fallen one? There he is, fallen on his hands, the fallen one of the Hittites. That's the chief of the Hittites. So the reliefs, 85 occurrences, 100% consistency. Is that incredible or what? The Egyptians knew what they were talking about, folks. And when we look at these uh, inscriptions, it's an amazing experience. Of course, Merneptah, we talked about him earlier. He's the king that uh, records the Israelites for the first time in history in 1209 B.C., um, he records Ashkelon, a city that we know well along the coast. It still is occupied today. There's over a million people living in Ashkelon today. Here you have uh, the first depiction of the Israelites on this uh, wall monument as well. Here we have the description of Israel in hieroglyphics at the, at the base of this large victory stela that was found in 1896 in Thebes. So I'll end with a story. I was presenting at a professional meeting it was actually in Nashville. And I was presenting the data of the Battle of Kadesh and the consistencies that we have in this battle. I basically presented what I presented here. I had 20 minutes to do it. And when I was done, the question and answer time came. A scholar in the back raised his hand and he says, what if you're a minimalist like me and you don't accept that Israel existed or that Canaan existed? in the second millennium BC. I didn't know what to say because I had just presented all the data, all the evidence like I have with you. And I went into more detail, of course, in the scientific presentation. Didn't skim through it like this. So basically he's saying, I've seen all your data, but I don't, I've decided already prior to seeing your data that I don't believe that those things existed because the Bible was written many, many years later. If you want the background to all of this, you can listen to the presentations last GYC last year. So in my pause of not knowing what to say, a spry old gentleman jumped up from the front row and he turned around to answer the question for me. You know, sometimes God puts spry old gentlemen in professional meetings with a room full, it was a room as full as this, with scholars from all over the world. This was the Society of Biblical Literature. 9,000 scholars from all over the world. The biggest religious meetings on biblical studies that happen in the world every year, different cities. This time it was in Nashville. He got up and he says, this is the kind of evidence that makes your position not only ridiculous, but ludicrous. Now, this is not the way you talk in scholarly communities. You talk about it seems like, maybe, you know, you defer, you're, you're polite. He was an elderly gentleman that didn't care anymore. <laughs> he was also the ranking Egyptologist in the world. And he had been flown from England to the Society of Biblical Literature to have the keynote address for the entire 9,000 participants that year. And he happened to also be an evangelical Bible-believing Christian. His name was Kenneth Kitchen. And he's written a wonderful book entitled On the Reliability of the Old Testament. If you want to wade through it, it's about 600 pages. So he stood up, and he said, but he didn't stop there. I wanted to crawl away like a little mouse. You know, I would like shrink away and crawl away because I was a little embarrassed. He says, I am sick and tired of scholars like yourselves, biblical scholars, who don't know one iota of Egyptian, who have never studied Egyptian hieroglyphics. I am tired of you pontificating about what the Egyptians did and did not know. Here are the facts. They are the real facts. This happened. These people existed. This is the end of the matter. And he sat down. And let me tell you, after that, I didn't receive another question from the audience. <laughs> I had 10 more minutes of questioning. 
but I didn't have another question. I went out to with Professor Kitchen to dinner after that. He invited me with uh, another very well-known Egyptology professor, Jim Hoffmeyer. All of us Christians, Bible-believing Christians, they were both non-Adventists, but good people. And they're both still alive today. And I said, you know, sometimes I feel when I'm in these communities that I'm on an entirely different planet, that we're talking past each other. We have completely different worldviews. And Kenneth Kitchen, I still remember, leaned forward. He says, you're not on a different planet. They're the ones that are on a different galaxy. (laughs) Anyway, I'm sharing this with you today simply for this. When we stand up, we give opportunity for God to stand up. When Moses stood up in the courts of Pharaoh, it gave God opportunity to work his miracles to bring his people out of Egypt. And when we have the courage to stand faithful as God's chosen remnant people, we allow God to do things that are incredible. I believe that God is preparing you, each one of us, for that kind of work in every sphere of influence that we have to finish the work before Jesus comes. May God bless us, and let's pray before we leave. Heavenly Father, you are a gracious God, and we thank you that you've been with us throughout these four presentations today. We pray, Lord, that you would infuse us with the love, the spirit of Jesus, that we might not only stand for you, but we may do so with great dignity, that we may do so knowing the facts. Help us to be students of your word and of the spirit of prophecy so that we can understand the time in which we live and the challenges that we face today with answers that are ready from your word for each of these questions. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.